what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number 30. Thank you so much for joining me. In this episode, we are going to be unraveling something of profound importance for understanding the push towards a one world government and a one world monetary system. This is a key component of that agenda and it's a highly secretive trust corporation that sees 2.5 quadrillion dollars, yes 2 0.5 quadrillion dollars worth of property passed through it each year and who now quite literally own the world or at least most of it and I'm not talking about BlackRock here. Now for anyone who watches my other show the Parallel Systems Broadcast you will know that I've been doing a lot of work on something called the Great Taking which is essentially the counterpart, the hidden counterpart to the Great Reset's assertion that you will own nothing and be happy. You will own nothing and be happy. How is that even possible? Surely that would require a total war against the citizenship in which they would surely fight back. Well, yes and no. The total war part is correct, but the true art of war is of course to defeat your enemy without ever having to even face them on the battlefield. So that is what this story is all about. So I've got so much to unpack tonight. This one is a member exclusive, or at least the second part is. The first part is free, of course, for everyone. But if you would like to hear the second part, where I'll be releasing some research that I have not put anywhere else, then you can join us over on parallelmic.com. This one is an absolute bombshell episode, and I'm very excited to get into it. So without further ado, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. And I'll see you all in the next one. So our story begins in the 1960s when a number of profound changes began to take place across the financial sector that led to the hyper-financialization that we have in the world today. These changes were particularly focused on the securities markets which loosely simply refer to all of the financial assets that our financial lives quickly come to revolve around. So we're talking our mortgages, loans, corporate bonds, equities, municipal loans, basically any tradable financial instrument. So the 1960s going into the 70s was a period of substantial deregulation which was required in order to create the financial behemoth that would eventually consume the entire global economy which is where we are today and has led to skyrocketing national debt and the creation of an ever bigger international Ponzi scheme filled with all manner of toxic debt instruments like derivatives for example which we will come back to later. But it might shock people who were born after 1970 to learn that prior to the 1960s, it really was the case that the stock market and its role in the life of most people was insignificant to non-existent. To give you an example, prior to the 1970s, most people had zero exposure to stocks and bonds at all. Like literally zero. Their private pension, if they had one, given only around 20% of people did back then, would have been made up of an actual pot of money. Actual money that had been saved, not of stocks and bonds. And it was guaranteed that the worker would receive a set amount each year when they retired. Not so today. So whilst you could play the stock market and partake in speculative bubbles if you wanted, and they did happen, such as the big one in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties that led to the biggest stock market bubble in American history to that point, and the collapse of which led to the Great Depression. But despite that, the markets had still yet to dominate the lives of everyday people. People back then owned real things, physical assets. They stored their wealth in something that was real, in gold and silver for most of history, not fiat debt notes. 
The wealthy elite would own antiques, they would own land, they would own property, they would have real things and it's no different today. Make no mistake, the richest and wealthiest elite, the cabal at the top of this financial pyramid, they hold real assets. Everyone else however today has been convinced to hold most of their supposed wealth in securities or put another way in promises, promises that we will be paid in the future. Even the money that we own, or should I say currency, is simply a debt obligation. It's a promise to pay us in the future. It's not gold, it's not silver, it has zero intrinsic value and it can and will be defaulted on. So it's completely normal today for the everyday man and woman to live in a house with a big mortgage on it to pay into a pension that is filled with securities like equities and bonds to have a car even that maybe has a loan taken out against it. Now pension funds used to hold a lot of their wealth in actual real assets. I'm talking in land, in rentable property and in gold and silver. Yes, prior to the 1980s, almost all pension funds held at least 10 to 20% of their assets in gold. Why was that? That was because they understood that stocks and bonds could lose 90% in a single year. In fact, they could be defaulted on entirely. So you definitely wouldn't want to put the future wealth of an entire nation purely into financialized assets that had counterparties. That was a foolish thing. Everyone understood that. Well, not today. Absolutely everything is put into this Ponzi scheme and that means that if the Ponzi scheme does go down, the entire wealth, not just of our generation, but of past and future generations will be lost. Similarly, our bank deposits, that is a loan unto the bank and they've already set up, as you all know, for bank bail-ins. So we don't even own the money that we think we are saving in a bank. But we'll come back to this later because I'm going to be discussing how it's actually way, way worse than people even think. But let's go back to the 1960s because this was a key turning point in which people moved away from owning real things, tangible physical assets that they owned outright, to intangible assets. Now when it came to securities, and I'm talking equities, if you owned stock in a company, you actually owned a piece of that company and therefore that company was still a part of your physical property. If you had shared certificates, they would constitute your entitlement to owning a part of that company and that's how it was for all of history. So for most of history, owning a security, owning some equities was much like owning a piece of property. However, this all changed in the 1960s when something happened called the paperwork crisis. And this was a supposed crisis in the securities industry, so we're talking the investment industry, stemming out of their use of paper certificates for issuing stocks and bonds, which like I said was the way it had been throughout history. If I had 100 shares in a company, I would have 100 pieces of paper, 100 certificates, and legally speaking, the court of law would ascribe me property rights over those pieces of paper, so I had to look after them, I had to put them in a safe, because if I lost them, I lost my property. In the mid-1960s, a great conglomerate merger wave swept the American business landscape as companies built portfolios of unrelated businesses that let them bypass antitrust restrictions. These were the go-go years on Wall Street, which resulted in a sharp increase in trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange. The sheer mass of stock certificates overwhelmed back offices up and down Wall Street, resulting in a backlog of trades waiting to settle and clear. For months, the New York Stock Exchange remained closed on Wednesdays just to allow brokers time to catch up. But even this was not enough to stem the tide of failed trades. Thieves, meanwhile, exploited the chaos with organized crime syndicates making off with more than $400 million worth of looted securities. Okay, so just to put a fine point in this one, prior to the 1960s, if you bought equities, if you bought bonds, you got given physical certificates and legally speaking in the court of law in all countries that constituted your physical property but as things became more and more hyper financialized as people were buying and selling more and more stocks and bonds the brokers who were dealing with customers apparently could no longer keep up and it was becoming very very difficult to process all of the trades to issue all of the certificates and backlogs were starting to happen and many trades were not actually going through because they simply didn't have the capacity also they mention in that quote above that thieves were stealing the certificates exploiting the chaos but to use this as justification for what come next is a little bit far-fetched because quite simply thieves can steal any physical property whether that's gold whether that's jewelry or a piece of artwork or your bank deposits, 
anything can be stolen by thieves. So I don't know why they're making out as though with securities it was a particular problem. Of course, the paper backlog, well, that makes sense, but that was only because the system was already becoming hyper-financialized. Okay, let's go on to the next quote. The events of the late 1960s put the securities industry on a treadmill. To cope with rising volume, brokerage firms needed computers and professional management, which required substantial capital. Although brokerages needed a steady stream of transactions to pay for this investment, the stock market volume remained volatile. Fortunately, sophisticated computer and administrative systems allowed brokers to handle not only more business, but also more types of business, permitting diversification. Firms who had specialized in brokerage moved into underwriting, while those that had concentrated on underwriting moved into brokerage. Companies that had confined themselves to stocks and bonds started trading commodities, currencies and options. Brokers that had emphasized selling to institutions started to manage money for individuals whilst those who had dealt chiefly with individual investors sought out institutional customers. Firms often developed entirely new lines of business, creating money market funds and managing individual retirement accounts, IRAs and the 401k retirement plans. Each expansion required further and more investment in automation and management as well as large infusions of capital which in turn sent firms in search of even more business. To meet these demands, brokers merged and sold stock in themselves to the public. By the end of the century, publicly owned behemoths like Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley Dean Witter dominated the securities industry, operating on a scale that dwarfed even the largest firms of the late 1960s. Meanwhile, the proliferation of financial services fueled the explosion of volume in securities markets, which by the late 1990s totaled 50 or 100 times that of just 30 years earlier. So this was the supposed paperwork crisis and the response by those at the top of the financial pyramid was to push for greater and greater centralization whilst also expanding mightily the amount of securities that were being traded. So they started to create all new kinds of products and this whole industry really started to emerge, this giant octopus that wrapped its tentacles around the entire globe. Now, of course, for a select few elite families, this allowed them to control more and more regions of planet Earth by getting other people into debt and convincing them to give up their physical assets in favor of these paper promises. Now, when it came to things like stocks and bonds, the paperwork crisis was used as the catalyst to take people away from physical paper certificates and towards a book entry system. This was a process called dematerialization. Now, I've done episodes on this on my other show, The Parallel Systems Broadcast, so I won't dwell on it too much here. But in essence, it resulted in people no longer having a direct relationship with the issuer of the security. So whereas in the past, if you wanted to buy shares in a company, you would go to that company directly. Let's imagine you wanted to buy 100 shares in a company called Great Oil. You'd go to the company Great Oil, you'd give them your money, and they would give you the 100 shares that you requested and paid for. Now, those shares would be given to you in physical certificate form, and they would be issued directly to you, so you could take them away, and they would represent the physical property over those 100 shares. Well, all of this started to change because of this supposed paperwork crisis, and they went away from the physical certificates. So no longer were people being issued physical certificates when they bought shares or bonds. Instead, what was happening was it was simply being noted on a book entry system elsewhere. Book entry securities are investments such as stocks or bonds whose ownership is recorded electronically. Book entry securities eliminate the need to issue paper certificates of ownership. Ownership of securities is never physically transferred when they are bought or sold. Accounting entries are merely changed in the books of the commercial, financial institutions where investors maintain accounts. Book entry securities can also be referred to as uncertificated securities or paperless securities. So what was actually happening now is something called immobilization, which is where all of the shares were being issued to one central authority. And between us and those shares, there was a chain of intermediaries, beginning with our broker. But our broker didn't hold the shares. The shares themselves were now being held centrally. That's right. All of the certificates were kept by one entity right at the top of the pyramid. So what you have to understand is this period in the late 1960s had profound changes on two fronts. Not just in terms of how securities were managed, 
but the dematerialization, the removal of paper certificates, also had profound consequences in terms of our property rights because it opened the door for having ownership rights usurped. Because without the paper certificates no longer in our own possession to show our ownership over these assets, it actually became possible to legally remove our property rights over securities. And that is precisely what happened. The industry response was to hold all paper stock certificates in one centralized location and automate the process by keeping electronic records of all certificates and securities, clearing and settlement, which is the changes of ownership and other security transactions. The method was first used in Austria by the Vienna Gyro and Depository Association in 1872. One problem was that state laws required brokers to deliver certificates to investors. Eventually, all of the states were convinced that this notion was obsolete and changed their laws. For the most part, investors can still request their certificates, but this has several inconveniences and most people do not, except for novelty value. This led the New York Stock Exchange to establish the Central Certificate Service, the CCS, in 1968 at 44 Broad Street in New York City. Anthony P. Rires was appointed head of the CCS and NYSE president Robert W. Hack promised, we are going to automate the stock certificate out of business by substituting a punch card. We just can't keep up with the flood of business unless we do it. The CCS transferred securities electronically, eliminating their physical handling for settlement purposes and kept track of the total number of shares held by New York Stock Exchange members. This relieved brokerage firms of the work of inspecting, counting and storing certificates. Hack labelled it top priority. $5 million was spent on it and its goal was to eliminate up to 75% of the physical handling of stock certificates traded between brokers. One problem, however, was that it was voluntary and brokers responsible for two-thirds of all trades refused to use it. By January 1969, it was transferring 10,000 shares per day and plans were made for it to be handling broker-to-broker -broker transactions in 1,300 issues by March 1969. In 1970, the CCS service was extended to the American Stock Exchange. This led to the development of the Banking and Securities Industry Committee, BASIC which represented leading US banks and securities exchanges and was headed by a banker named Herman Beavis. And finally, the development of the DTC in 1973, which was headed by William Denser, also known as Bill Denser, the former New York State Banking Superintendent. All of the top New York banks were represented on the board, usually by their chairman. BASIC and the SEC saw this indirect holding system as a temporary measure on the way to a certificateless society. Today, all physical shares of paper stock certificates are held by a separate entity, Seed and Company. Okay, so after this paperwork crisis, there was this host of legislation changes, the development of new bodies, and all of it was done to dematerialize and take us away from the physical certificates. Now, without the physical certificates, property rights could no longer be granted to the person who bought the stock. Now, unbeknownst to them, the entire relationship was legally changed in secret and they were given something new. It wasn't property rights, it wasn't ownership, it was something called the security entitlement, which was essentially the new form of ownership that people were being given when they had their property rights removed with the loss of paper certificates. Unbelievably, nobody at the lower levels had any idea that this had even took place. How is that even possible? Well, I'll tell you how. It's because most of the changes were done through the Uniform Commercial Code, which is something that US states adopt voluntarily, meaning it doesn't have to go through Congress. So the banksters essentially had to convince each state to adopt it, while simultaneously convincing these brokerage firms to stop promoting the use of certificates to their own clients. Now, this was absolutely an act of subterfuge. There was a clear agenda in play, and if you have read the book, the Creature from Jekyll Island, or listen to my episode titled Vampire Bankers and the Central Bank Scam, then you'll know all about how this works. Now this in my opinion was every bit as significant as the formation of the Federal Reserve. This whole plan and the way they did it is in my opinion the Creature from Jekyll Island Part 2. 
And as you're going to find out later in part two of this episode, when I share with you an astounding document I found in my research interviewing the man who helped form the DTC, lifelong CIA agent William Densler, the plan to immobilize certificates and take the property rights away from people truly was a grand conspiracy. But before we get there, let's just consider the Uniform Commercial Code for a second, because this was a key part of the subversion employed by the DTC, and it provided the mechanism through which this whole thing could be achieved without Congress or the Senate or even the public ever having the opportunity to scrutinize it. The Uniform Commercial Code, the UCC, is one of the uniform acts that has been promulgated in an attempt to harmonize the law of sales and other commercial transactions in the 50 states of the United States of America. The UCC was the first of the uniform acts to be proposed and is the longest and most elaborate such act. It is a joint project of the National Conference of Commissioners of Uniform State Laws, NCCUSL, and the American Law Institute, the ALI. The code, as a product of private organizations, is not itself the law, but only has the force of law if enacted by the states. The ALI-NCC-USL has also established a permanent editorial board for the code, which has issued a number of official comments and other published papers concerning the code. Although these commentaries do not have the force of law, courts interpreting the code will often cite them as persuasive authority in determining the effect of one or more provisions. The code has been adopted by all 50 states, the District of Columbia and the territories of the United States. The Uniform Commercial Code deals with the following subjects under consecutively numbered articles. Number 1. General provisions. Number 2. Sales of goods. 2a. Leases of goods. Number 3. Negotiable instruments. Number 4. Bank deposits. Number 4a. Fund transfers. Number 5. Letters of credit. Number 6. Bulk transfers. Number 7. Bills of lading, warehouse receipts and other documents of title. Number 8. Investment securities. Number 9. Secured transactions, liens and security interests in personal property. Okay, so now we're starting to get a sense of how the trap was set up. And I liken it to that game, if you've ever seen it. It's called Mousetrap. It used to be very popular when I was a boy. And there was this game board, and throughout the board, you set up this giant mechanism, which led to a trap at the very end, which was a cage sat atop of a long pole. Now, once the mechanism was triggered at some point in the game, what you'd see is this whole thing would start to unfold, and eventually the trap would come down. And if your game piece was underneath that trap at that point, then you would lose. You would get trapped in the mouse trap. That's how it worked. Well, this is exactly how I envision this setup. Over the course of 50 years, they were adding the mechanisms in place so that eventually that trap could be set up. And now we are at the point where it is ready to be sprung. But the UCC was absolutely critical to this because there was very little scrutiny in terms of what was being done to property rights. And I think that was the point. Because as corrupt as Congress is, I don't think they would have been able to push through this one directly. And like I said, when I researched those involved, they say as much themselves. They repeatedly, in their own discussions, talk about how the UCC was purposely used so that the big banks could get their way when it came to securities and the creation of the DTC, the Depositories Trust Corporation. And this is where the title of today's episode comes from the corporation that owns the world, so we're going to be speaking about them more in a moment. But the security entitlement, let's just dwell on that for a moment. What the securities entitlement gave people, rather than owning the property, owning those shares and bonds outright, what it gave them was simply a contractual claim. That's it, just a claim against their broker, who themselves do not even own those shares. The broker just has a claim on the shares. So now you can see the full extent of the subterfuge. The property rights were taken and then you was given the most subordinated and lowest form of ownership possible. In fact, it doesn't make you an owner. It just simply gives you a claim the same way that a banknote gives you a claim for the value that is supposedly on that note. But it's debt. It's a debt token. Well, what you got in terms of securities was not much better. You simply have a claim to the benefits that you would have were you to own that stock or bond outright. So you will get paid your dividend, you will be able to transfer those shares, you'll be able to sell them at some point. So long as the system is functioning, but you are not the true owner. And if anything goes wrong, 
all you can do is try and enforce your very subordinated low-level contractual claim and not against the DTC but against your broker who of course can just default and say well we do not own the shares anyways and a judge would look at it and they'd say well nobody here owns the shares it's the DTC under the corporation Seed & Co which we're going to get to in a second who actually own them therefore you don't get a damn thing that's the security entitlement. Now, it's interesting to me that over the past few years, we've seen many, many people in the alternative media making videos, YouTube videos, TikTok videos, Instagram videos. There was even a guy on Joe Rogan discussing this, and they were claiming that BlackRock and Vanguard are the secret owners of the world. They own all the companies. This, my friends, is a complete fallacy. These companies don't actually own a thing. They don't own any of those shares. They simply take care of the contractual claims that investors like you or I or our pension portfolios have in terms of stocks and bonds. They simply middle manage the security entitlements. They act as a huge intermediary, kind of like how banks act as an intermediary between you and the central bank. But the commercial banks are subordinated to the central bank. They simply take care of the middle management stuff. They allow us to have a bank account while we put our debt notes. They'll create the financial products, but ultimately it all goes back to either the Federal Reserve or in the UK, the Bank of England. Well, this is the same relationship that BlackRock and Vanguard have with the DTC. They get to hold the contractual claims for all those shares that we buy, but legally they don't own those shares either. They're just acting as the intermediary as part of this chain that goes all the way to the top to the DTC. So for me, this is the real PSYOP and people who repeat this, that BlackRock and Vanguard own the world are actually propagating a very useful and powerful lie because the truth is way, way worse than that. And the DTC show, this whole story about BlackRock and Vanguard is nothing more than a decoy. The real owner, the real person we should be looking at is the DTC or the DTCC as it is now known, the Depositories Trust and Clearing Corporation and also their subsidiary, Seed & Co. And it's Seed & Co. whose name they register all of the securities in. The Depository Trust Corporation, or DTC, which is today called the DTCC, is based primarily at 55 Water Street in New York City. It is the world's largest post-trade financial services company, and it was set up to provide an efficient and safe way for buyers and sellers of securities to make their exchange and thus clear and settle transactions it also provides custody of securities, all the securities. Created in 1973 and originally named the DTC, or Just Depository Trust Corporation, they automate, centralize, standardize, and streamline processes that are critical to the safety and soundness of the world capital markets. Through its subsidiaries, the DTCC today provides clearance, settlement, and information services for equities, corporate and municipal bonds, unit investment trusts, government and mortgage-backed securities, money market instruments, and over-the-counter derivatives. The DTCC is also a leading processor of mutual funds and insurance transactions, linking funds and carriers with their distribution networks. The DTCC provides custody and asset servicing for 3.5 million securities, comprised mostly of stocks and bonds from the United States and 110 other countries and territories, valued at $350 trillion, more than any other depository in the world. In 2022, the DTCC settled the vast majority of American securities, totaling around $2.5 quadrillion. Okay, so that was a brief overview of the DTCC in their own words, on their own operations, from their own website, but also from Wikipedia. Now, it sounds pretty benign on the face of it, but a few things stand out here. The first is that word quadrillion. In 2022, they dealt with 2.5 quadrillion in transactions, and they have on their balance sheet a total of $155 trillion of assets. That is what they have. That is what they own. $155 trillion in assets. Now, how is that possible? Well, quite simply, because they are the registered owner of all of our assets that we think we own. Now, that is trillion with a capital T. They own them all, making it the largest corporation on planet Earth that nobody has ever heard of. Now, just to put this one into context, $100 trillion was the global GDP in 2022. So DTCC has more assets than the entire global economy. I looked at another way. The value of all the gold in the world sits at just $10 trillion. 
So how can this company have 155 trillion in assets, seven times more than the GDP of the United States, and 15 times more in value than all of the gold on planet Earth that has ever been mined? A real asset that is extremely rare. It sits in the F's crust at about 0.000005%. One thing that we could say is knowing that gold's 10 trillion, that those assets that are 155 trillion, well, there is no way that those assets are truly worth that. But that's not the point. The point is that they have them all, all of them. So what does this tell us about the global financial system? Like I said, one is that it's grossly enlarged, and of course, a huge reason for that is the deregulation that took place from the 1960s onward, which I've already described. And the other was that key part of it, the removal of gold as the anchor that forces nations to keep so much gold in the vault to back their currencies with. A real asset that holds them back from printing currencies to oblivion stops this thing from getting out of hand. Because if you're forced to hold so much of this rare and extremely valuable metal in the vault to cover a percentage of all the notes printed, there is no way that the DTC could hold $155 trillion worth of assets when all of the gold in the world is only valued at $10 trillion. It would simply be impossible. There would be no way to build these massive speculative bubbles and there certainly would be no way to create 2 to 4 quadrillion in toxic financial derivative contracts which currently now exist and we'll come back to that in a moment. But before we do that, let's continue to explore the DTCC. Now, as the previous quote mentioned, they were formed in 1973, which is very interesting because this was a time of great activity in the world of finance and in the world in general. It was just after the US reneged on the Bretton Woods promise to redeem the dollar internationally for gold. So this took gold out of the monetary system for good. It was also the year that the petrodollar was born. And it was also the year that the Twin Towers were officially opened, 1973. An interesting little factoid here is that 55 Water Street, where the DTCC eventually resided, is also built by the same company who built the World Trade Center complex. Now, another thing that happened in 1973 was it was the year of the Yom Kippur War in which Israel had a conflict with Palestine, Syria, Egypt. So this was a very key year for many reasons. And of course, the last one's particularly significant, having seen what just happened in Israel, where there was the incursions by Hamas. And if you'd like to hear my take on that, I did an audio newsletter for my Parallel Systems broadcast. So that's my financial YouTube channel. I do have a Patreon page where I make specific financial content purely for that and this month was all about what just happened in Israel and I say in that newsletter that I think we have now entered the financial end times and I talk about what that means in the newsletter so you can check that out on patreon.com slash parallel systems. Now there was a number of key astrological events taking place during that year too involving Saturn. Now that's really interesting because Saturn is the planet of materialism. It's the planet of dead matter and it was in Gemini during that year and it just so happened to also be in Gemini the year that the two towers fell. So just think about that for a second. The year the two towers were opened, 1973, Saturn was in Gemini. And it was also in Gemini. And remember, Gemini is the twins. And if you look at the astrological symbol, it's two lines joined together, like two towers stood next to each other. And they also went down when Saturn returned to Gemini. It was also in opposition to Pluto, which is the planet of destruction and transformation. So interesting tidbit there, but we don't have time to go down that one too much. So let's get back to it. The DTCC, like I said, formed in 1973 and was given pretty much complete and total control over all American securities and eventually the securities of another 120 countries. So what this means in layman terms is that whenever somebody buys or sells a bond or an equity, it's the DTCC who manages it. But it's not just that, there's also many other things too, which we're going to talk about in part two. Now what the DTCC does when you buy a stock or bond through your broker is not ascribe that to you, nor are they ascribed to your broker. They are literally kept at the DTCC in what is called fungible bulk. I'll put another way, they're all kept in one giant mass. Everything is just all held together. And there is not a single individual who owns them. No brokerage firm owns them. Not even BlackRock or Vanguard own them. Nobody except the DTC itself. They are the sole single registered owner of all securities in America. Yes, 
you heard me correctly. The trillions of dollars, the $155 trillion worth of securities, including pretty much every security in the US ever issued, is owned legally, not by the people who buy them, not by the intermediaries, but by the DTCC itself. This is the company that quite literally owns the world. Now get this, the first president and CEO was William Detzler, who I've already mentioned, a lifelong CIA operative who mysteriously found his way into banking, having spent his life as a CIA operative infiltrating student unions around the world. But by his own admission, he knew nothing about securities, security law, or computers, and yet he was the man. He was the man who was chosen to run the DTC, something he did for almost two decades. Why this is starting to sound almost like a CIA operation. The ownership of securities is governed by Article 8 of the Uniform Commercial Code. This Article 8 is a text of about 30 pages and it underwent important recasting in 1994. The update of the UCC treats the majority of the transfers of dematerialized securities as mere reflections of their respective initial issue held primarily by two American central security depositories, respectively the DTC for securities issued by corporations and the Federal Reserve for securities issued by the Treasury Department. In this centralized system, the title transfer of the securities does not take place at the time of the registration with the issuer's registrar for the account of the investor, but within the systems managed by the DTC or the Federal Reserve. Decentralization is not accompanied by a centralized register of investors or owners of the securities, such as the systems established in Sweden and Finland, the so-called transparent systems, which I will just add no longer exist because the US went country to country to make sure that everyone else was doing it their way so that in the end game, everything could be taken, but I digress. Neither DTC nor the Federal Reserve hold an individual register of the transfers of property reflecting beneficial owners. Let me just repeat that. Neither the DTC nor the Federal Reserve hold an individual register of the transfers of property reflecting beneficial owners. The consequence for an investor is that proving ownership of its securities relies entirely on the accurate replication of the transfer recorded by the DTC and the Federal Reserve and the other intermediaries in the holding system at the lower tiers of the holding chain of securities. So just to break this one down really simply, those at the top who have accept property rights and now hold all of the shares, they don't even keep any records. They keep zero records to show who has an entitlement to those shares. They own them all and that's as far as they care. Everyone else gets a security entitlement, which is a subordinated form of ownership that basically just gives you the entitlement to sell them, transfer them, or derive economic benefit from them. But you certainly don't own them. And in a crisis, they're going to be taken from you because that has already been guaranteed through the legislation that has been put in. But we'll get to that later. But isn't it interesting that it's all of the intermediaries that are responsible for keeping a track of who has what? So why would you do that? Just think about it for a second. Why would they make such a vulnerable system? Cyber attack anyone? A cyber attack could easily wipe out those records and then the DTC and the Federal Reserve can say, well, I'm sorry, we don't have any centralized list. We decided to centralize everything, but not that part of it. That was left to the brokerage firms and now their systems have been wiped out in a global cyber pandemic. Interesting thought, isn't it? The rights created through these links are purely contractual claims. These rights are of two kinds. Number one, for the links where the account holder is itself an account provider at a lower tier, the right on the security during the time where it is credited there is characterized as a securities entitlement, which is an ad hoc concept invented in 1994, e.g. designating a claim that will enable the account holder to take part to a pro rata distribution in the event of bankruptcy of its account provider. Number two, for each link of the chain in which the final account holder is at the same time the final investor, its security entitlement is enriched by the substantial rights defined by the issuer. The right to receive dividends or interests and possibly the right to take part in general meetings when that was laid down in an account agreement concluded with the account provider. 
The combination of these reduced material rights and these variable substantial rights is characterized by Article 8 of the UCC as a beneficial interest. This decomposition of the rights organized by Article 8 of the UCC results in preventing the investor to revindicate the security in the case of bankruptcy of the account provider. That is to say, the possibility to claim the security as its own asset without being obliged to share it as its pro rata value with the other creditors of the account provider. So let me just pick that one apart for a second. So what this means is, if your broker goes bankrupt, you cannot take your shares back out. That's called revindication. In the case of bankruptcy, those shares will be shared out with the creditors. And the secured creditors, the ones at the top of the hierarchy, will get the first pick. Now that's not you. Where do you think you sit in the hierarchy? Yes, that's right. You sit at the very bottom. You are the last person to have an entitlement in those shares. That is the ownership you now have. So there is no way to take your shares out of that. And this is legally being put into bankruptcy law. As a consequence, it also prevents the investor from asserting its securities at the upper level of the holding chain, either up to the DTC or up to the subcustodian. Such a security entitlement, unlike a normal ownership right, is no longer enforceable, erga omnes, to any person supposed to have the security in its custody. The security entitlement is a mere relative right, therefore a contractual right. So there you have it in their own words. This is lifted directly from the Wikipedia page of the UCC, which explains how amendments to the code following dematerialization essentially destroyed our property rights as investors. And that includes all of us today. Remember, whether we like it or not, nearly every person in the West has their pension fund invested in these securities, meaning that everyone is on the hook for this. All of the wealth of the West is included in this system. So as the above quote highlights, in a bankruptcy proceeding, you cannot take your shares back because they're not yours. All you have is the contractual claim to those shares and this can be defaulted on at any time. So your broker can renege on the contract because they themselves do not own those shares. They too only have a contractual claim or security entitlement with entities further up the chain. So just like that, we get this pyramid structure in which nobody actually owns anything and right at the very top, you get the DTCC, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. Everyone else beneath them just has a counterparty and a host of promises that will one day be reneged upon. It's like that Spider-Man meme where there's all those Spider-Men pointing at each other as if to say he's responsible. Well, that's exactly what it's going to be like in the next financial crises. Everyone pointing at everyone saying they're responsible for reimbursing you, but there'll be nothing to reimburse because all of it's already gone. All of the assets will be taken. Okay, so let's talk a little bit now about Seed and Co. C-E-D-E and Co. So who are Seed and Co? Well, Seed and Co are the nominee. So this is another corporation that was set up by the DTCC and they register all shares, all securities on Wall Street as assets for Seed and Co. So it's like the shell company that they're using. And isn't it funny that they're using all of these corporations? This is maritime law. You have to understand that when you're born, when I'm born, we have all treat as corporations. All of our nations, the countries that we reside in, they are corporations. That's why the US has changed its name multiple times from the United States, the United States of America, to simply America. This is when they're renegotiating the contract with their banking oligarchy. And they have to put up more and more collateral. And that's exactly why Seed & Co. exist. Seed & Company is shorthand for Certificate Depository. It is a specialist United States financial institution that processes transfers of stock certificates on behalf of the Depository Trust Company and the Central Securities Depository used by the United States market system, which includes the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Seed & Co. technically own most of the publicly issued stock in the United States. Thus, most investors do not themselves hold direct property rights in the stock, but rather have contractual rights that are part of a chain of contractual rights involving Seed. Securities held at the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation are registered in its nominee name, Seed & Co., and recorded on its books in the name of the brokerage firm through which they were purchased, 
On the brokerage firm's books, they are assigned to the accounts of their beneficial owners. So that is how the chain works. Now notice how it says technically owns there as if it's all just an illusion that this is somehow immaterial. Well, that is absolutely not the case. And we know this because they have set up legislation across the West to ensure that this legal ownership is absolutely 100% enforceable. And not only that, but in the collapse of the Ponzi scheme, they are going to use this mechanism to transfer all of those assets, not back to you, not back to the person who bought them, not to the pension funds to make sure we all survive in old age. No, they're going to be transferred to a group of secured creditors who have legally been guaranteed protection from the collapse of the debt pyramids. This is something they've been working at for the last 50 years and in the last 20 years they went country to country to ensure that this could take place. So this is no conspiracy. It's far too precise and far too much of a concerted effort. There's so many steps that were involved. It's extremely complex but they've succeeded. And having achieved legal certainty, they have now put up all of those securities as collateral to backstop themselves. So they're ensuring that in the collapse, they will get to take everything and there will be nothing left for us. They're going to sweep all of the silver cutlery off the table and into their own laps and there'll be nothing left for you or I. And this can legally be done because they all own it. They're owned by the elusive Seed & Co, a subsidiary of the DTCC. But consider for a second the name of this company, Seed & Co, spelled C-E-D-E. -E. That's shorthand apparently for Certificate Depository. And of course, they keep all of the certificates for themselves, so they are a certificate depository. But let's look at the Cambridge Dictionary definition of the word seed. Seed, to allow somebody else to have or own something, especially unwillingly, because you were forced to do so. Wow, could it get any more obvious? A coincidence? I don't think it is. I think they expected that nobody would ever come to understand these things until it was too late. And given the state of the global financial system, too late is actually now very, very close to us. But the question is, if Seed & Co are owned by the DTCC, who owns the DTCC? That is the question. Who is the owner of the $155 trillion worth of assets? Who's going to be the kingmaker? Who's going to take them all in the collapse? Well, that, of course, would be the central bank. The DTC is a member of the US Federal Reserve System, a limited purpose trust company under the New York State Banking Law and a registered clearing agency with the US Securities and Exchange Commission. And I've got this article from two decades ago that I found discussing this very issue. Listen to this. The banks and brokers are merely custodians for their clients. By federal law, they cannot hold onto the assets in their customers' names. The assets must be held in the name of the DTC's holding company, Seed & Co. That's how the DTC has more than $19 trillion of assets in trust. And like I said, that's $155 trillion today. But is it really in trust if the private Federal Reserve System is technically holding it in their unknown entity's name? Obviously, if a stock or bond certificate you've purchased are not in your name, then the holder, the Federal Reserve System, could theoretically refuse to surrender them back to you under a national emergency, according to the Trading with the Enemy Act as amended. And we're going to come back to this in part two. Is this the collateral being held by the private Federal Reserve System to pay off the national debt owed to them by our federal government, first initiated by Lincoln's debt bonds of 1864? In an interview with previous director of training for the DTCC, Mr. McNeff gave the following information. The DTC was a former member of the New York Stock Exchange and our sister company is the National Securities Clearing Corporation, the NSCC. They've since merged, which is where the DTC became the DTCC. He was correct since we now know that the New York Stock Exchange holds 35.1% of the ownership of the DTC on behalf of their New York Stock Exchange members. Simply put, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation absolutely controls every paper asset transaction in the US, as well as the majority of overseas transactions. And they now physically hold, as of April 1999, 99% of all bond book entries in their street name, not their actual owner's names. If you have a stock or bond certificate in your name buried in your backyard or under your mattress, we suggest you keep them there. If not, 
It might be very wise to cancel your brokerage account and power of attorney status, re-register the stocks and bonds in your own name if you still can and keep them hidden where only you know their location. Otherwise, you have absolutely no control over them. So here is a very important point because for a long time this secret existed. Like I said, this article was from over 20 years ago, but most people simply had no clue and they were blindly led into this system. No questions have been asked. But if you were smart enough to figure it out or simply refused to give up your old share certificates and never sold them, there was actually a way to continue retaining full ownership. Now, most people didn't. 99% of people were put into this system. Their brokerage firms were told by the DTCC, don't tell them about physical ownership. Just put them in the system and nobody was asking questions. And that's how they managed to get 99% of all people to simply accept putting themselves into this doomsday device that will one day take away all of their assets. So I imagine a lot of people right now are asking the question, well, can't we just go back to getting our certificates so that we have full ownership and then at least we're protected? Well, not so fast. In September 2020, whilst the COVID hysteria was in full swing, the Depositories Trust and Clearing Corporation quietly released a document titled From Physical to Digital, Advancing the Dematerialization of US Securities. And here is a quote from that document. Resilience is a term often used to describe the ability to respond to adversity and the DTCC has long considered resilience an integral part of our values and guiding principles. We are proud of how the industry has demonstrated extreme resilience and agility throughout the extraordinary events of the past several months, managing unprecedented market volatility and transaction volumes. Without question, however, supporting physical securities, a very small piece of the industry's business, has been a distraction from an otherwise very resilient response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, the industry has reached an inflection point, highlighting the compelling need to move forward to full dematerialization. The costs and risks incurred by processing physical securities are no longer acceptable. DTCC has outlined a roadmap toward full dematerialization. We are now embarking on building consensus among the stakeholders on critical next steps and engagement. Without question, there are operational hurdles within this area of the industry, including issues related to business models, record keeping, inventory, resilience and controls. However, the complete dematerialization of physical securities, fully transitioning away from paper to electronic records will contribute to a more cost-effective, efficient, transparent, secure and competitive and above all else resilient marketplace for all. The world of online, not only cashless, but contactless commerce has accelerated and has forever reshaped every aspect of consumer behavior. Physical securities processing is no different, and it is well past the time we, as an industry, should all agree to move forward together towards a better solution. Wow. So there you have it, folks. The final 1%, just that measly 1% of paper certificates that was being held physically, well, it turns out that they are dangerous due to infectious diseases, just like cash, just like the cash. Do you remember during the pandemic where if you went to Starbucks, they refused to accept your cash because it was dangerous whilst they then handled your food and drink and passed it over to you as though it was somehow protected. It was just the cash that carried the plague. Well, the physical paper security certificates that are sat in the vaults of these very clever and shrewd investors who figured out the game are also now apparently dangerous. Even though the document's author, Marie Posmanta, who is head of clearing agency services at DTCC, even though he says himself that physical securities are a very small piece of the industry's business. Well, I'll tell you what, I smell a rat. <laughs> I smell a big rat. The idea that that 1% is causing some kind of issue in the system is an absolute fraud and a lie. It's yet another deception in the same way telling us that handling our cash was dangerous was nothing but an out and out lie based on nothing but ideology and propaganda. 
Now, I've done my own research on this one, and what I found out is that pretty much none of the major UK brokers actually allow you to claim the paper certificates for yourself, so they've already made massive inroads. It's actually almost impossible to get anyone to issue certificates for you, so clearly they've been sealing the exit points from this Ponzi scheme for a long, long time in preparation for what we now call the Great Taking. Now in part two, I'm going to discuss why it doesn't even make sense anymore to try and get those physical paper certificates because not only are they going to try and close the door on it anyways, it wouldn't work and I'll explain why in part two. But knowing what we now know, having listened to this episode, you can now see why gold and silver are so damn important and why they do not want anybody to own physical gold. It's because it allows you to get out. But in terms of securities, unbeknownst to most people, there was still the potential for a time to get your certificates out, but it seems like they have now made that impossible. And as I said, it wouldn't work anyways for reasons I'll get into later. So they're going to turn that 99% into 100%. Now ask yourself why that is. Well, if you've read the book The Great Taking by David Rogers Webb, you will know why. It's because the DTCC, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of International Settlements, they've collateralized all of the securities held in the name of Seed & Co., or in other words, all of the assets held by the public and by institutions that they think they own. So we're talking stocks, bonds, pension funds, and not just that, all financial assets available to them. So any property with a mortgage on it, any factory with a mortgage on it, machinery, anything that is held within the financial system by a bank or a broker, the whole lot is now collateral that has been legally guaranteed to be taken in the event of a financial collapse. Make no mistake, this would be the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. And it's not just in the US where this has been planned for, it's across the entire Western world. And I'm still doing my research into Asia, so watch this space. Now the terrifying part of all of this is that this collapse is guaranteed to happen now because there are two to four quadrillion in derivatives, financial bets far, far exceeding the ability of those people who made them to pay. Essentially, banks bet with one another on anything and everything imaginable with little to no regulations to stop them. Now ask yourself again, why were they allowed to do this? Could it be that the end game was always in sight? And this is why property rights were quietly and covertly taken and handed off to the central banksters through the DTCC and Seed & Co. So that when the system does come down, as it was guaranteed would now be the case, everyone would have the rug pulled on them. You will own nothing and be happy. How is that possible? That was the question we asked at the start. Well, now you know. So I'm going to leave it there for part one, which is really just our introduction to the DTCC, because in part two, we are going to go much deeper into this one and take a look behind the curtain to uncover who the DTCC really are, who is behind them. Importantly, we're also going to discuss what we can do to start taking action ourselves on this one. And this is something I've been helping people with a lot recently in my wealth preservation consultations because it really has never been more important to come up with a comprehensive strategy to protect our wealth and de-risk our assets because one day very soon this whole thing is going to come crashing down and it will be too late. The trap is set. The fuse is in place. It just needs to be lit and then overnight... At the flick of a switch, the press of a button, this is all going to unravel. So if you'd like to discuss working with me one-to-one -one in a consultation, you can get in touch with me via my website, look under Wealth Preservation Consultations, or you can email me. Members, head over to parallelmike.com for part two. You certainly do not want to miss this one. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Hope you're all well, healthy, and happy. And of course, I'll see you all in the next one if I don't see you over there for part two. What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Really, peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly, expressing yourself.
for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.